I want to tie up some loose ends from last week and address some questions. Um, we had some questions come up in our leaders meeting that I, I don't think I, they, they may have been asked again, but I think was important to discuss. Um, one question was, is it victim blaming to, to say that Dina shouldn't have been going out to the women of the land? Um, I, I don't think it is victim blaming. I think one of the, one of the premises behind victim blaming is not to take away the focus off the victim. Right. And I, and I understand that. Um, and yet I think in any situation, there are complex reasons about why something happened and the text doesn't say this. Um, but I do believe it was Jacob and their, and the brothers of Dina, it was their responsibility to protect her. So at least to some extent, there is some responsibility for them. Um, the second question that came up was there's violence throughout the old Testament. What makes what Simeon and Levi did um, to the Hivites so heinous? Um, and it's that they deceived a group of people into thinking that they were becoming the people of God into in membership into Israel and then slaughtered them while they're vulnerable. That's what makes it such an evil crime. When you pretend that someone's part of your community and then slaughter them, it's pretty bad. And then another question came up about what did they do with the people that were captured? There were Hivites that were captured and it doesn't say, it just doesn't say what happened to them. And I think Fred the Gator mentioned in our meeting that they were probably enslaved. Um, and that was probably typical at that time. Okay, so there are some, for sure, some unpleasant, a lot of unpleasant realities to life in the ancient Near East. And I heard a pastor say this recently, and I thought this was helpful. Um, the Bible is written for us, but not to us. Okay, it's for us, but not to us. And what that means is there is some work we need to do to interpret it into our culture, into our time. And so what I wanted to do today is talk about... Um, and he, actually in Genesis 38, there's gonna be an even more disturbing story than what happened in what, 35. Um, and so we're gonna talk about Tamar, but we're also gonna cover, we're gonna start the beginning of the Joseph narrative. And so I wanna call back to um, a theme that has been discussed throughout Genesis and that Fred the, Gator, Fred the Gator used and this idea of contrary motion, okay? And I particularly wanna examine the idea of contrary motion in the Joseph narrative which starts in Genesis 37. Okay, and so I'm gonna preach today's sermon in two parts. The first part is chapter 37 and the, the whole Joseph getting sold into slavery. And then the second part is the Tamar story, which, told, which seems completely unrelated, but I wanna show you how much they are linked in the narrative. Okay, so this first section is gonna be called the perfect downward spiral, okay? Because everything is spiraling downward in Jacob's family. And so let me give you some context to Genesis 36. The first thing that happens in the previous chapter, actually, I think it's 35, is Rachel passes away as she's giving birth to Benjamin. Okay, so the mother of Joseph dies previous to what happens in Genesis 37. And then I also want to note that Simeon and Levi disqualify themselves. When I say disqualify, they show themselves as being not very good people because of this basically claiming I'm a genocide. They, they exterminate a group of people. Um, and then Reuben, who is the oldest son of Leah and the oldest son of Jacob, he also disqualifies himself. And that's in Genesis 35, 22. Um, he sleeps with his father's concubine. Okay. And so that's, that's something you don't do either. <laughs> and so you have three of the oldest sons of Jacob disqualifying themselves in some way for leadership. And we're going to see further disqualification of other sons as well. Actually, the rest of the sons completely. Okay, 
Um, so you have all kinds of sibling unrest um, happening in Genesis 37. And I'm not going to read 1 through 11, but I'll give you, I'll give you kind of the synopsis. This Genesis 37 begins the Joseph narrative, and really the rest of Genesis is around Joseph. And so if you want to have a formula for sibling unrest, Genesis 37 follows all of the, the formula, all of the requirements for it. The first thing that Joseph does, and remember, he is the second youngest brother okay, of 12. He tattles on his half-brothers, the son of Bilhah and Zilpah. That's in verse 2. It says he brought a bad report of them to their father. So the first thing you want to do if you want to cause sibling unrest is to tattle on your siblings. Um, the second thing in verse three, it says, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. So another formula for sibling unrest is obvious favoritism from the patriarch of the family. Okay. Um, and there's this, again, this word love that's being used appropriately, but you wonder like, why would, why, why is the word love always used in these contexts that don't seem like fully appropriate. Um, and and the, the socially acceptable answer always in a situation when you love your children is you love all your children. But clearly it says here that Israel loves Joseph more than any, of, any other of his sons, which is the Bible never is concerned about being socially acceptable. Okay. Um, and then to make it worse, Israel, which is um, Jacob, makes a multicolored robe, which will become important later. He makes a multicolored robe to clearly identify Joseph as the favorite son. So now you have a visual reminder to all the other siblings of how this is the favorite son, if you didn't need to be reminded already. Um, and then, and this is it's not over, and then there's two more things. God gives Joseph this gift of having these dreams. And you have to wonder sometimes what Joseph was thinking, because he's 17. He does have some awareness. But this first dream he has is... You, he has this dream where his brothers are bowing down to him, where he's reigning over his brothers. And I, you know, you, you got to wonder, like, you wish he would have asked his dad to, or told his dad this dream before he shares it with his brothers, but he doesn't. And he tells his older brothers how he's going to reign over them. And then, and I, this is really bad, but then and to make it even worse, and in, in the, the fourth thing that happens is he has another dream where not only are his brothers bowing down to him, but also his parents. Okay. And it says in verse 11 that his brothers were jealous of him, but he kept this, but he kept, but he kept the saying in mind. And so Jacob remembers what's going on, but all of this is this tremendous escalation of sibling rivalry. I mean, this is, this is crazy. And so it's no wonder um, what we're, what it's leading up to. And this is a theme that's been throughout Genesis, the sibling unrest and violence. We see it beginning with Cain and Abel, we see it with Cain building a city in rebellion. We see the violence of pre-Noah. We see the Tower of Babel. We see Solomon Gomorrah. We see Noah and his youngest son. There's rivalry between Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Laban, Rachel and Leah. So you get, this is, by my count, the 14th detailed account of dysfunction and evil going on in Genesis. And the, so this is all downward. This is all downward motion that's happening. And the only upward thing that I might say is that Joseph has this gift of dreams. That's this one upward movement. And so now we have this tension building because we know something's, gotta, something's gonna happen. Something's gonna break here. Um, and it's, it's not gonna look good for Joseph. So in verse 12, <clears throat> what we have is the brothers go to pasture their fa father's flock. And 
as the brothers go to do this, lo and behold, they happen to forget Joseph. And I think that was intentional. They did not, they ditched him. Um, and then, so Jacob notices and says, you know, your brothers are pasturing the flock. How come you didn't go with them? And he sends Joseph, which maybe in retrospect was not a good idea. And so now Joseph goes out and looks for them. And I love this because it says in 15, and a man found him wandering in the fields. So I think the brothers ditched him again because they saw they either they saw him coming or they didn't tell where they were. And Joseph has no idea and he's wandering around in the fields. And so finally, and it probably shouldn't be that hard to keep up with these flocks of sheep because now they're in Dothan and they, the brothers see Joseph from afar and they conspire to kill him. They say, come now, come. He, they say to one another, here comes this dreamer, this is verse 19. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Okay, so they come up with a scheme that they're gonna kill him. And then this is an interesting point because the, each of the brothers role in this narrative matters. And in this case, Reuben speaks up and says no and rescues Joseph before anything happens out of their hands and says, not, let us not take his life. So Reuben actually does something honorable here. And so what they do instead is they take him and they throw him into a pit. And then as a result of it, um, well, Judah makes a comment and Judah is going to be very important to the story. He makes a comment in verse 26. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Now, remember, Judah is the fourth son. He is the fourth son. It's Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. What profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. So he's making a plea. Let's not kill him. Let's, let's make some money off him, okay, by selling him into slavery. And what's interesting is it doesn't seem like they actually do it because Midianites come by and, res and, and not rescue him. They take him out and they sell him. So the Midianites are actually the ones who make money off him, um, not the brothers. And then it turns out in 29, somehow Reuben had gone away, but Reuben comes back and finds that Joseph is gone. So we do have one interesting thing, and I think it's important here. Reuben had a very good intent in, in saving Joseph, but he's not able to fully execute on it because he's already sold off into slavery before it happens. And then Judah is the one who actually, it was his idea to sell off his brother. Okay, and so now we have this perfect storm and then you get the result of it because the robe, again, this, this multicolored robe, they take, they slaughter a goat, they rip the robe and they dip the robe in blood and then they give it to their dad. And then in 34, it says, then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And then in 36, it says, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in, e had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And so you have this downward spiral where Joseph is finally sold off. His dad thinks he's dead and he's mourning and no one can comfort him. Okay, that's our, that's our perfect storm. And, and sometimes you think that's the absolute worst that can happen, but sometimes like that's rock bottom for this family. But sometimes rock bottom is just like a skylight that you fall through and you, then you keep dropping because that's what happens in 38 because it actually, things actually get worse. Um, for Jacob's family, okay? And so what I'm gonna do is, 
in 38, you, it seems like a total tangent for what's happening in the Joseph narrative because now the narrative focus isn't on Joseph, it goes to Judah. But this is a really important scenario. This is really important in terms of what happens because there's actually, even though it continues to go downward, we're gonna see an upward movement. We're gonna see some contrary motion happen in Genesis 38. Okay, so now I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read 38.1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shalah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. Okay, the first thing I would notice is that the way that things get worse here is that number one, Judah leaves the family. He goes away. And I think it's fairly understandable why he would flee his family. His family is a train wreck. And he just sold his brother into slavery and his dad can't be comforted. So he departs the family. But the tragic thing is that you're not supposed to intermarry with the Canaanites. And that's exactly what Judah does. He intermarries with someone else. Now we've noticed in our courtship stories so far, they've always been sent off back to the homeland to find a wife. But that's exactly what Judah doesn't do is he finds a Canaanite for his wife and he has two sons. And then in verse six, it says, and I'm sorry, not, yeah, and verse six, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. It doesn't give us any details about why Ur is evil. It just said he was wicked in God's sight. And I think there are, there are a lot of disturbing things that happen in the Bible, and it's not always clear exactly why they're, why they're there. All we know from the narrative is that God chose to put Ur to death. It doesn't explain to us why, other than that he was evil. I mean, it clearly is that he was evil, but it, there are also evil people that don't get killed. So we don't know exactly why, we just know that it happens. And then verse eight, it says, then Judah said to Onan, who's the second, right? He's uh, son number two, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shalah, grow, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Okay, a lot just happened there. So first, let me explain a custom. A custom that happens. By the way, this is the downward motion, right? His son dying is part of the downward motion of what's happening. It's part of this perfect downward, this perfect downward spiral. Um, and what happens? What happened in the ancient Near East is there's a custom called leveret marriage. And the idea of leveret marriage is that if if um, a husband died without having kids, then his brother would sleep with the brother, the deceased brother's wife, in order to raise up offspring for him. Okay. We do not practice this today, but again, in the ancient Near East, what's important is for the family line to continue. And it was important for Judah's family line to continue, as we'll see, because he is the promised line. The promised line of Jesus goes through Judah. And now Judah's line is threatening to end because he doesn't have any, Judah doesn't have any grandsons at this point. Okay. 
So it's threatening to end. And so Judah is asking Onan, the second son, to, to do the duty of a brother and to raise up offspring for Ur, the first son. But Onan does not choose to do that. So he uses Tamar for his pleasure, but will not impregnate her. Okay. He spills his seed on the ground. That's what that reference means. And so you, you have to think to yourself, why would that warrant killing him? Why would God kill him for that? Well, he's supposed to be doing his duty to raise up offspring, but instead he's using his brother's wife for his pleasure. That's evil. That's evil. Okay. And then, and, and God kills him for it. And so now at the end of this chapter, you have two of Judah's sons dying, being killed. And the spiral has continued downward. And then the way in which it's even in further jeopardy is that Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, whom deserves to have offspring to raise up for Ur, he is, she is to remain a widow in her father's house till his youngest son grows up. But as we see, and this, as this narrative continues, he has no interest in giving her to his youngest son because he sees her as like a black widow. Right, she she's gonna kill whoever whoever sleeps with her dies, because that's what happened to his first two sons. And so let's read in verse twelve. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Sheba's daughter, died. When Judah's when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shares. So this is a third person in Judah's life who passes away, who's close to him. He and his friend Hira the Dulamite. And when Tamar was told, "Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah." to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is along the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shalah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Again, there is no plan for her to have offspring, to continue the line. And what, that's the most important thing that can happen. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taken off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So there's this crazy thing that happens here. And I know, I've, I know I've preached this before at Garden City. Um, she does this crazy thing where because she decides that Judah has no interest in giving her away to her son, she comes up with this plot where she dresses up like a prostitute, okay? And she concocts a scheme to sleep with her father-in-law, which is something that you just, never would recommend to anyone. Um, and yet it's actually something daring and redemptive. And how do we know that? Well, let's keep reading. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the thing, let, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, end of the first trimester, um, Judah was told, 
Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. Behold, the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shalah. And he did not know her again. And this is the climax of this passage. And there's more to it because Tamar becomes a mom, as we'll see. But what, what is amazing about this passage is that you understand. Okay, first, a couple things. Tamar can easily be killed. In fact, she's about to be killed. And so Tamar did something really wise in that she took his signet, he took his seal. All of these things, they're like, they're like his signature, right? All of, the, all of the things that he takes are Judah's signature. And then she sends it to him. And it sounds like she sends it to him privately. Okay, so that it wouldn't be public. And maybe eventually it would be, it would become public. But she saves him from this kind of shame of being publicly acknowledged that he's the one that slept with her, right? But the signet ring, they're all identified as his own. And he realizes in that moment in 26 that she is merely exercising the right that was due for her, which is to raise up offspring on behalf of his deceased son. She was doing the job that he couldn't do, that he chose not to do. And so when Judah says, she is more righteous than I, here's one way you can look at it. She justifies me. She has done what is righteous when I could not because she chose to sacrifice herself and do this daring scheme to preserve the line to go through her because Judah would not. So what Tamar is doing is this selfless act. And by the way, she's risking her life to do it because at this point, no one knows what could have happened. Judah could have just said, hey, you know what? Just let her die. Once he sees the signet and the staff, he could have just let her continue to be executed. But he chooses not to because he recognizes that she was claiming a right and she was doing something on behalf of the family. And there's so many ways in which Tamar is just an unlikely hero of the story because she's an outsider. She's a woman. She's not an Israelite. She's a double widow. She's dressed as a, as a prostitute. She's an outsider in so many ways. And yet it is her righteousness that rescues Judah. And then the question becomes, why is this important? Why is this here in the Joseph narrative? Well, as we're going to continue walking through the Joseph narrative, there is one brother who stands out, who leads the family to be saved by Joseph. Because Joseph um, becomes a ruler in Egypt. And he asked the brothers to do some, some difficult things. And the leader of the brothers that emerges over the next seven chapters or so is Judah. And so what the narrator is answering for us is how does Judah become the hero of this family? Well, the second hero, because the first hero is Joseph, right? The, the centerpiece of the Joseph narrative is Joseph as the hero. But then the question is, who is the second hero? And the second hero is, is Judah. And what Genesis 38 is answering is how are heroes formed? 
and they're formed by contrary motion because Judah is disqualified from his family, right? I mean, he disqualifies himself. He's the one, it's, it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. And then he leaves the family and then two of his sons die. And so the question is, what causes someone to be won back into their family? And it's because of Tamar. Tamar is the one who wins back Judah into his own family. And she's an outsider. She marries into this family. And so what I want to, I want to, I want to introduce a term. Okay. Tamar is a redemptive catalyst. Okay. A redemptive catalyst. What's a, what's a catalyst? A catalyst is someone who starts something. And what Tamar does, and she eventually becomes a mother, right? What Tamar does is she starts a sequence of redemption. So the family is suffering. Joseph's been sold into slavery. Rachel is dead. Jacob is mourning. Judah goes away from the family. Judah loses two sons. You, you hit very, the very bottom. But Tamar is the beginning of the sequence of contrary motion where she says, you know what? Enough is enough. I'm going to rescue this family. I'm going to do something selfless. And it's daring and it's deceptive, but it's going to do something good for this family. And that's the beginning of Judah's redemption. So she is the catalyst for this redemptive cycle where Judah is saved and redeemed. And then Judah saves and redeems the family through Joseph. And so then the question is, how does this relate to us? How does this relate to us today? Well, in the past, I've talked about Tamar as a kind of hero, like she, we're saved by an outsider's righteousness. But I think the question I want to examine or think about today is, when have you been rescued by someone else's righteousness? When have you been rescued by someone else's righteousness? Because Tamar is the one who rescues Judah. And she's the one that starts this virtuous cycle to save him and redeem him. And the beauty of being a Christian is you are not rescued by your own righteousness, but you have been rescued by someone else's. And I'm always a little bit flabbergasted when someone tells me, well, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. And I think to myself, no, that's exactly the point is you're not good enough because you're saved by someone else's righteousness. And we've been saved by the righteous son who disguised himself as a criminal and deceptively died on the cross so that all the sins of humanity would be born upon him and we would not have it on ourselves. We've been saved by someone else's righteousness. But even then, there was a redemptive catalyst in Jesus's life, his mother, that began that sequence of redemption because she was also conceived in mysterious and shameful circumstances because Joseph and Mary were, no, Joseph and Mary were not married. And so there was even something shameful about her conception. In the same way, there's something shameful about Tamar's conception. And so um, in verse 27 of, 30, of 38, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Two sons replace two sons. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand and his name was called Zara. And I think Perez, Perez is the chosen one through whom the promise line goes. And so the promise line continues 
through these redemptive catalysts, these mothers. And other examples of them that are mentioned in Matthew are Rahab and Ruth. And Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth are all in this line of redemptive catalyst mothers, including Mary, who are redemptive catalysts, who start off these virtuous cycles where everything is going downward and then they shape upward through what they've done, through their rescue. And so the question that the sharing time question today is when have you been rescued by someone else's righteousness? When have you been rescued by someone else's righteousness? And certainly you can answer Jesus, but you can also think more broadly than that. And I just want to share a brief story. Um, I know I could share about my mom, but let me share a brief story about a sixth grade teacher I had named Miss Delbridge. And she, what, what is amazing about her is that up to that point in my life, um, as someone who probably would be diagnosed with ADHD, I just could not sit still at all. And I could not focus at all. And she allowed me during sixth grade to um, use modeling clay and doodle and, and, and make little tanks out of modeling clay while listening to her. And every other teacher prior to that had taken it away, had, had taken away something I was doing with my hands. Um, and so this is the first time that I experienced someone who not only accepted it, but embraced it. And she would every now and then take the, the tank I made and show it to the class. Um, and then she'd also ask me questions during because she knew I could listen while I was doing something with my hands. So any compassion that I have today for my boys or for others, and I'm not always compassionate, any compassion I have when I see them being distracted or not being able to focus is because of what Ms. Delbridge did. It started off a redemptive cycle for me that allowed me to show compassion. And so that's the meaning behind this question is when someone rescues you by their, by their righteousness, it starts off something in your heart that changes how you see the world and how you see people. And that's what Jesus does for us. Let's pray together. Father God, we are not saved by our own righteousness. We're not saved by anything that we've done on our own. In fact, if any... <laughs> If anything, uh, well, not if anything, we are condemned by our unrighteous acts, just as Judah was condemned and left his family. Uh, we also are alienated apart from you. And so, Lord, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the salvation history of redemptive catalysts like Tamar, who at the very bottom of a family cycle performed a daring and sacrificial act of rescue. And in doing so, started off a virtuous cycle of upward movement. 